is that we walked in this, into Lot's furniture and we found a piece of furniture we liked and we asked them if they would ship it. And they said, they don't ship anywhere. If you can't put it in the back of your pickup truck, in a U-Haul, stuff it in your trunk or put it in the back seat, it's not going home with you. And they have been in business for more than 100 years doing business like that. Unbelievable. Well, we had been there probably less than 48 hours, and I was sold on this town. In fact, I was Googling houses to buy in Laurel, Mississippi. I was ready. And by the end of the week, we were driving up and down streets of Laurel, Mississippi, looking at houses. And I'll tell you what, if I wasn't married to a risk manager... I probably wouldn't be here because I would have bought a house and we would be in, or I would be in Laurel, Mississippi. (laughs) Um, But it's amazing at at how quickly we can become attracted and distracted by things of this world. So the point is that we hunger for so many things and those things that we hunger for take our focus off of the one thing we should be hungering for, which is God. God. And we're going to talk about hunger and thirst and consistent prayer this morning that will help us refocus on where we need to be. We're going to go to Psalm 63. And while you turn there or get out your Bible app, let me share with you a little bit of context as to how Psalm 63 is believed to have been written. There's two trains of thought. Some theologians believe that This psalm was written while David was a young boy or a young man, and he was being chased in the desert by his father, King Saul, who wanted to kill him because Saul was jealous of everything that David had accomplished. The second side of it is that David is again in the desert, only this time he's being chased by his third son, Absalom. Absalom wants to kill his father because Years before, five years before, his half-brother Amnon had raped his sister Tamar, and David did nothing about it except banish Absalom from the kingdom after he murdered Amnon. So five years pass. David invites Absalom back, and he doesn't come back in a thankful mood. He comes back with a hunger for vengeance, and he raises an army, And he starts to lead a rebellion against King David. So David flees the kingdom. He leaves Jerusalem. He leaves all the wealth behind, his ten wives, and he goes into the desert. And that's where we pick up Psalm 63. Psalm 63, verse 1 begins, O God, my God. Did you hear that word, my? One of the most powerfully relational words in the English language. David could have said anything. He could have said, Oh God, the God of Israel. Oh God, the God of my ancestors. Oh God, the God of Abraham. But he didn't. He said, Oh God, my God. Which tells us he had a personal relationship. He knew who God was. It was more than just, Hey, good morning, God. How are you? Nice to see you again. It was not superficial, as Pat Brandon, uh, Pastor Sweeney told us a few months ago, but it was heartfelt. He knew who God was, and he had a relationship with this God, and that's why he could say, my God. Contrast that to what we do a lot of times. 
A lot of times we're, oh God, where are you? Why aren't you helping me? I need you here right now. We're not saying, oh God, my God, come help me. We're saying, where are you? I need you now. I'm in a tough spot. Big difference between personal and non-personal. Next four words. Earnestly I seek you. Earnestly means a sincere and intense conviction. So we know that David knew who God was. Now we know that he was intentional about finding God. He didn't waste any time. God was the first thing on his mind. And when you think about it, is he the first thing on our mind? You see, some of your translations may use the word early instead of earnestly. If you have the word early, what does that remind you of? Pastor Cameron says, his word, first word. David didn't need an appointment with God. God was David's first appointment of the day when he woke up. He hungered to have God there, as we'll see in the next verse, or in the next part of verse number one. That next part of verse number one says, My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. Now, some translations will also use the word, my body faints for you. And if you stop and think about that, here David is in the middle of the desert. There's no uh, Starbucks over the next sand dune where he can get a frozen latte to, to uh, quench his thirst. There's no Chick-fil-A by the next mirage for him to be able to get something to eat. But he's not even thinking about that when you, when you read this. He says, my soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. His hunger and his thirst for God overwhelmed everything else. At what point do we have that same hunger in our lives? When we wake up in the morning and our stomach says, feed me, what do we do? We feed it, right? When we have a headache, what do we do? We take Tylenol. We take aspirin. When we want to buy a new car, what do we do? We save money or we go out and get a loan and buy the new car. And the list goes on and on because, you see, there is nothing in this world, of this world, that we wait for except God. Because we always think, I can get to that tomorrow. And, I find, and you find yourselves putting God off and off and off because I can get to him tomorrow, yet we know what? Our next breath isn't even promised to us. So, it brings us to two questions that Pastor Cameron has been asking us since the beginning of January. What could God do with my life if I was in consistent prayer? What could God do through my life if I was in consistent prayer? Verse 1 ends with the words, In a parched and weary land with no water. David is literally in the desert with what? His soldiers, his tents, and God. And it's all he needs. And he knows it's all he needs. And that's why he tells us that he is seeking God intentionally. He is hungering for God first and foremost, and that nothing else matters. And for each one of us, 
we are going to be in a desert one day if we're not in one at this very moment. It could be a desert of financial distress. It could be a health crisis. It could be a job crisis. It could be injustice. It could be grief. And the list goes on and on and on. But how do we handle that? Uh, how do we handle that desert is the big question. This is what we look at. The desert does two things. It makes us uncomfortable, which is why we're crying out for help, and it refocuses us. You see, we get so busy in our day, as we mentioned before, that God comes second to so many things. But when we're in that desert, all we're focused on is God. How can you get me out of this? The difference is that when David went to God, David went to God knowing who God was, not wanting something from God in terms of needing him to help him out. He knew who God was. When we go to God so many times, we need something. We need him to help us do something uh, to get us right out of that spot so that we don't feel uncomfortable. Because how many of us like to feel uncomfortable? Uncomfortable means... We're in the kingdom of God. Comfortable means we're in the kingdom of me. If any of you saw the movie The Jesus Re Revolution, you remember that Lonnie Frisbee, one of the lead actors in that movie, Lonnie Frisbee is the guy that started the Jesus movement back in the late 60s, early 70s. If you're wondering, yes, I was alive then. Um, but he started this movement, and what happened was he was sitting in Pastor Chuck Smith's kitchen at the table with the pastor, and he's a hippie con trying to convince him that he should open his church to these people. And Pastor Smith says what you and I probably would have said, uh, that feels very uncomfortable. And Lonnie says the words that nobody wants to hear, which is, Maybe you should feel uncomfortable. So he takes that message and he goes to his church the very next Sunday and brings the hippies with him. And you can imagine what his church said. They confronted him with the very same words. They're making me uncomfortable. And he answered with the very same words of Lonnie Frisbee. Maybe you need to be uncomfortable. And maybe we need to be uncomfortable to be able to get into consistent prayer with God so that we're asking him or we're knowing him for who he is instead of asking him for what he can do for us. So consistent prayer puts our focus back on God. If you think about prayer, we have more than 25 illustrations in the New Testament of Jesus praying. If that's not the example to follow, what is? And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 through 13, what happens? The disciples come to Jesus and they say, teach us how to pray. And he says, pray like this. And what I would like to do at this moment is recite all of us to recite the Lord's Prayer the way Jesus taught it in Matthew chapter 6. And it began with, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, sin against us, okay. And lead us not, but deliver us for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, right? No more powerful words than that right there. Because once we say those words, we can never be the same. We know exactly what we're praying for. We know who we're praying to. And we know who it is, his characteristics that we're trying to emulate. Verse 2, David says, I have seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and your glory. David, like us, knows that the sanctuary was not the four walls of his temple or the four walls of this room, but his sanctuary is right here. We carry him in our hearts every single day as believers. And what do we do? Our job is to gaze upon him and his glory and give him that honor and glory we don't always do the best job of that, though, because we don't see him a lot of times the way we should, the way David did. But think about it. If David's gaze and power was on God, why was it there? It was because he knew what God had done for him that nobody else could do. Remember all the transgressions that David had done in his life? transgression so serious that most of us would think, ooh, he's a bad guy. We're a lot better than David, which is not the case. But David knew because of those sins, what God had done for him, how he had transformed his life. And therefore, he was there in constant prayer, gazing upon the power and the glory of God. Contrast that to us. If you're like me, what do I do? It's more important for me to handle something so many times. And I'll give it to God when what? I can't deal with it anymore. And then, of course, God doesn't deal with it fast enough. What do we do? We take it back. So it's important that we just remember that this is a God who never fails us. And I'll share a really quick, quick story with you. So we have a person that... <clears throat> comes to our church, lost their job, and they're praying for a new one, right? Asking God to give them a new one. Over the course of the next six months, do you know how that prayer evolved? It evolved into the words of, God, give me something that will glorify you. How many times do we ask God to do that? Give us something that glorifies him, that brings him honor and glory. Not very often, but that would be a great example. Lastly on that thought is, if we're in consistent prayer, are we putting on the body, the, the body armor, the armor of God every day? Are we wearing the belt of truth, the sandals of peace, the helmet of righteousness, the sword of the spirit? That's a great question to ask yourselves when you wake up. Am I putting on the armor of God to do battle? 
And if I'm not, maybe I need to be in more consistent prayer. Now let's go to verse 3. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. How I praise you. Remember, David is still in the kingdom. It's being overran by Absalom, or he's still in the wilderness. His kingdom has been overran by Absalom. He's being chased. It's just him, his soldiers, and God. How can he literally say, your unfailing love is better than life? How can he say that? Would you say that? I probably wouldn't say that in the worst moment of my life. But he does because he knows that there's nothing more precious than the love of God. And he never grows weary of the love of God. And if I had to guess, I would say none of us have ever grown weary of the love of God. Verse 4. I will praise you as long as I live, lifting my hands up to you in prayer. Notice it doesn't say, I will only praise you in the good times, when my health is good, when my finances are good, when my marriage is good, when my friendships are good. It doesn't say any of that. It says, I will praise you as long as I live, lifting my hands up. Now, for some of us like me, that used to be something that was very uncomfortable. Singing or praying was to go like this, because I wasn't raised in a church that did that for one, and I would see people do it, and I was like, oh, I would love to be able to do it. Well, I told Pastor David this in starting point, that I would like to be one of these people, but it's so uncomfortable. And he didn't exactly use the same words, maybe you should be uncomfortable, but he said, feel free to join us anytime. And so now it's almost becoming second nature to raise my hands in certain songs, in certain prayers, but the one thing I would tell you is, do you realize that this symbol is a symbol of surrender? It's the universal symbol of surrender. So if we're in praise and worship with God, are we surrendering? That's the question. Are we showing him our surrender? Are we telling him, I surrender everything to you. I give it all to you. Last verse, verse 5. You satisfy me more than the richest feast, and I will praise you with songs of joy. And here we are back to food. David is telling us and his God, our God, that there is nothing more satisfying than him. There is no food, no drink, no recognition, no amount of money, no perfect vacation, nothing that is better than this. Nothing is better than the love of God and being in the presence of God. Consistent prayer changes our world as well. Now, I'd like to take just a couple of minutes and wa watch this video. It's titled, If I Were the Devil, and see what comes to mind when you watch it. If I were the devil, if I were the prince of darkness, I'd want to engulf the whole world in darkness, and I'd have a third of its real estate and four-fifths of its population, but I wouldn't be happy until I had seized the ripest apple on the tree, B. So I'd set about however necessary to take over the United States. I 
like the birth of churches first, I'd begin with a campaign of whispers. With the wisdom of a serpent, I would whisper to you as I whispered to Eve, do as you please. To the young, I would whisper that the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I would confide that what's bad is good and what's good is square. And the old, I would teach to pray after me, our Father, which art in Washington. And then I'd get organized. I'd educate authors in how to make lurid literature exciting so that anything else would appear dull and uninteresting. I'd threaten TV with dirtier movies and vice versa. I'd peddle narcotics to whom I could. I'd sell alcohol to ladies and gentlemen of distinction. I'd tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, I'd soon have families at war with themselves, churches at war with themselves, and nations at war with themselves until each in its turn was consumed. And with promises of higher ratings, I'd have mesmerizing media fanning the flames. If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to refine young intellects, but neglect to discipline emotions, just let those run wild. Until before you knew it, you'd have to have drug-sniffing dogs and metal detectors at every schoolhouse door. Within a decade, I'd have prisons overflowing, I'd have judges promoting pornography. Soon I could evict God from the courthouse, then from the schoolhouse, and then from the houses of Congress. And in his own churches, I would substitute psychology for religion and deify science. I would lure priests and pastors into misusing boys and girls and church money. If I were the devil, I'd make the symbol of Easter an egg and the symbol of Christmas a bottle. If I were the devil, I'd take from those who have and give to those who want it until I had killed the incentive of the ambitious. And what'll you bet? I couldn't get whole states to promote gambling as the way to get rich. I would caution against extremes in hard work, in patriotism, in moral conduct. I would convince the young that marriage is old-fashioned, that swinging is more fun, that what you see on TV is the way to be. And thus I could undress you in public, and I could lure you into bed with diseases for which there is no cure. In other words, if I were the devil, I'd just keep right on doing what he's doing. So as you watch that, you could probably click off or check off each thing on there as being seen in our world today. Except that, for some of you may know, this was written and broadcast in 1964. Almost 60 years ago. And it's right on the money with where our world is and why. Because all too often we're not in consistent prayer. We're going right along with it in so many words. And we've built this culture. So as we move into a time of prayer right now, Maybe this will become the first day that you will be in consistent prayer. Maybe it will be the time that you become like David. It's a moment where we can change a lot of things. We're going to have people up front to pray with us, like Pastor David, Pastor Edgar, and others on the side. And we ask that you come forward to be prayed with, prayed for, and prayed over. And here's why. 
being prayed for, being prayed over, and being prayed with is a blessing for the person that's providing that prayer, but it's a blessing for you as well. You see, God wants to bless us in every single thing we do. But we stand in the way. We don't want to be uncomfortable by asking someone to pray for us, with us, or over us. But maybe, just maybe, we need to be uncomfortable like that. So if you can come forward, and we will start our response time and just think about if you're in a desert, maybe that's what you need is someone to be able to pray for you. If you can't come forward, raise your hand. They will come to you. But let them have that blessing and let them provide that blessing for you.